Hi, this is Joe Marsh, and I would like to welcome everyone to the Literary Roundtable. Today we have two guests joining us for our Literary Roundtable. Our first guest is author Antonio Elmali. He is the author of the Civil War and Reconstruction novel titled The Ones They Left Behind. This book is the story of the journey one Civil War veteran takes in order to heal a divided nation. It is set in post-Civil War America and contains many parallels between America during the Civil War and Reconstruction and America today. And we will talk about many of those parallels during the course of this coming hour. Some of the topics we will discuss are the divisiveness of partisan politics, the breakdown of civil discourse, the erosion of civil rights, the challenges facing veterans coming home from war, and the overwhelming challenges of caring for wounded soldiers upon their return home, including post-traumatic stress. Also joining us at the roundtable today is Leslie Martin. She is a licensed social worker and a specialist in the treatment of combat-related post-traumatic stress. For nearly 27 years, Ms. Martin has worked with combat veterans who have served in combat in war zones ranging from World War II to those veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. And as a social worker therapist, she's helped veterans recover from the effects of trauma and the psychological scars left by that trauma and the ripple effects resulting from the injuries. Let me welcome Leslie to the roundtable. Thank you very much. Thank you. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of the, of the thematic elements of the book, what I'd like to do is to ask you, Antonio, if you would, to please read the prologue of the book, which I think will give listeners a really good idea of what the book is about. So, Antonio, if you're ready, why don't you share the prologue with our listeners? I, I surely will. Thank you. Article in the New York World, June 5, 1917. The editors are proud to publish the remarks offered yesterday to the first graduating class of the Columbia University School of Journalism and to the recipients of the first Pulitzer Prizes by the Honorable Professor of Journalism, Rufus Dews. Graduating students, proud parents, distinguished colleagues, and old friends, it is with pride and humility that I come here to speak at this commencement exercise. But first, I cast a glance to heaven and echo my unshaking belief that the creator of this institution and these awards, Mr. Joseph Pulitzer, is smiling down from a unique vantage point in the great hereafter, knowing that the tradition he helped create and passionately upheld, is alive and well in the hearts of the graduates and honorees whom I address today. How inspiring it is that of our first four honorees for the prize bestowed in his name, three are women. They are receiving this award for the outstanding biography of an outstanding woman, their mother, Julia Ward Howe. Mrs. Howe has earned an honored place in our hearts and history for her lifelong work to elevate American women to equal status in our society, to have the right to vote, and the right to earn equal pay for equal work. But Mrs. Howe earned her place before that, for penning the words to a song, the battle hymn of the Republic, that came to embody the national commitment to a purpose this country was founded on, and for which hundreds of thousands of our brave Union men gave their lives in what some call the Great Rebellion, others prefer the war between the states, but I say the war between brothers. Its impact and consequences 
will continue to shake the foundations of this republic long after each of us here have joined Mr. Pulitzer. My first story as a journalist is still the greatest story I have ever covered. That story started with a song as well. It was called Marching Through Georgia. I was 16 when I first heard it at a regimental reunion in Iowa in 1867. The story started with a wager and ended 2,000 miles later. What, you may well ask, made this story so great in my eyes? Simply how outstanding it was that one man went on a walk for national unity through the desolation of the post-war South, and with those he met down there and up here, discovered the better angels of their nature. In 1867, we struggled to adjust to the loss of hundreds of thousands of men and to welcome home still more hundreds of thousands of wounded and scarred veterans. It was clear to me, listening to the endless war stories on the porch of Mr. Tompkins' general store, that although the shooting had stopped, this war was not over. No one could agree about what to do with the states that had seceded from the Union. Some said we should put aside the painful anger we felt and bring them back. Others insisted that they be treated as vanquished foreigners, refugees barely existing in the hopelessness and destruction our armies had left behind, easy prey to carpetbagger schemes. It was a war I did not get to fight. Being too young, I felt cheated of the chance to show I was as much a patriot as any of the veterans singing in that hall 50 years ago. All I had were questions. What were the lessons to be drawn from this war between brothers? Were we still brothers? And from such wholesale carnage, what kind of people did we aspire to be? My only resort was to live in books, diaries, maps, newspaper accounts, anything I could enmesh in my boundless imagination so I might know what it was like to be there. And then I went there. I went on a journey with a man most thought crazy, others thought too damaged, but no one understood. And what I learned from him was that if we are to truly live as one nation, we would be wise to honor our obligation to walk in another man's shoes before passing, passing judgment on his qualities as a man or nullifying his rights as a man. <coughs> Discovering this obligation for yourselves will grace your lives as journalists, biographers, and historians. It will serve you better as people. To seek, it and seek out and embrace the warm glow of a common good rather than to be exiled to the sharp, dark edges of division. If there is one lesson, above all, all others, from what we can all agree was our war, surely it comes from Scripture. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Go forth and develop with diligence and dedication the instincts you will need most, but which will serve you best, to walk in another's shoes and to follow your stories wherever they lead. By serving those instincts, you must surely travel to a higher and better place than from whence you started. Congratulations, good luck, Godspeed. That was great. Thank you, Antonio. Now, The Ones They Left Behind is based on a true story. How did you come upon the story? Were you doing research for something else? 
Oh, yes. I was researching what to read on a flight home from Columbia, from Charleston, South Carolina. The answer is no, I wasn't researching anything. I was just trying to find and I picked and I picked up a book to fill my time on the flight, and it was a book about Civil War ghost stories, and that was an intriguing title, so I started reading, and there was one story in the book that was not a ghost story. It was, in fact, about a person, a real person, who had, in 1867, made a march to demonstrate uh, a symbolic desire to connect the uh, the broken pieces of, of our country by marching back to the South carrying his battle flag and his uniform alone and unarmed and saying if he could return home, he might have demonstrated that we might have a chance to be one people again. And lo and behold, he did survive this march. So I took that, essentially, that, that true story and then began to, uh, to develop uh, some themes from it. Did the real Civil War veteran, Gilbert Bates, uh, did he become famous for this uh, recreation of the March to the Sea? Yeah, he was written up by Mark Twain, actually, who told him he didn't have a chance in hell to surviving this thing. And most people thought he was absolutely out of his mind. Um, but he was just determined to, uh, to, uh, to, to show that he cared and that there, there, there had to be hope because... Uh, he just couldn't believe that with all the death and destruction and sacrifice that we were still essentially still fighting the war, even after all this death and destruction and, and a surrender of the, of the Confederate states. I should all point, also say that uh, one other thing that, that motivated me very strongly was that in 2000, when I started to actually work on the book, I, I was um, in Iowa, and I, I started to... Um, look at the, the electoral map of the country. And after the election, uh, I noticed something very, very jarring, that the map of the states that, um, uh, that vote, you know, the voted in the, in the election was the exact right. same map in 2000 that it was in 1860, with the exception of all the states that had come into the Union since the Civil War. So my question was why has nothing essentially changed in terms of the, in terms of the political makeup of our country from 160 years ago to today? So that kind of that graphic demonstration of of political division um, was also very much in the forefront of my my motivation to to write the book. Do you think that plays into why you think historical fiction is so important? I do. I think that history, as a rule, is very poorly served in our schools. I think that uh, you know it's it's very difficult to get a young person who has uh, never you know not really lived life yet to begin to imagine what it must have been like for somebody even his own age 160 years ago, and that is certainly not easily done when you're all you're reading about is battles uh de death statistics and very cold factual material but if you start to um develop a story in which the characters are rooted in historical fact um you begin to i believe you begin be begin to draw the reader into a personal identification with that character and the more true to life you, you paint the, the, the things that that character has to go through, the more connected to the journey is the reader. Um, 
it just you know but you have to know your history as a, as a writer of historical fiction you really have to you, especially when you're talking about the civil war which is probably the most written about um section you know uh, event in our history for which there are untold hundreds of thousands of people who are deeply immersed in in it and uh, if if i had stepped out of line with any factual material i would have been skewered rightfully so because it's uh, it's an obligation to both the, the conflict and to uh, serving the you know the purpose of a historical fiction that that the history and the research be as as complete as it can be well, that's what struck me after reading the book, is that a lot of the background information about the Civil War that you include in the book, I, I learned almost in every history class I've ever taken. But it wasn't until I read your book that I began to understand just what an enormous emotional toll war takes on veterans, particularly during and after the Civil War. To your point, it, 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 you know, there are lots of documented uh, you know, stories of a brother finding another brother brother on the battlefield that he may have actually shot. You know, when you start to really examine how many people were, were involved in this conflict, it's, it's almost impossible not to come to the conclusion that everybody, everybody was touched by it in one way or another, either, you know, a father or a brother or a, a mother or somebody was connected to the conflict and more than likely suffered some kind of loss. So that kind of nationwide uh, trauma is not something that I, don't, I believe uh, uh, we've, we've really seen, you know, not when it's, you know, within our own family. You know, certainly World War II had a scale that was just as large, if not larger, even though the fatalities of the Civil War dwarfed those of uh, World War II. And the other thing you illustrate so well in the book is the what happens to family members that are left behind during war well to me it's a, it's almost like the cornerstone of the beginning of the the, the woman's rights and and uh, women becoming aware of their own capabilities because with all the men either gone or dead or maimed there was really nobody to do the the job of not just running a family but sustaining a community so thrust into these kinds of roles that had never really been available to them before, I think the women had to, had to step up and, and, and show, um, you know, tremendous uh, diligence and responsibility in the, in the, in the wake of un incredible uh, loss and incredible confusion and, and all kinds of things. So uh, the, the social fabric of the country was, uh, was changed forever, I think. Do you think that the book being set in the past uh, helps or allows readers uh, to gain some distance and uh, some perspective on, on war and helps the story resonate with readers today? I do. I think that, that it's, uh, you know, when you're, you know, we're, we're in very passionate times now. There's no, there's no question. And, 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 and we're, it's very... It's, it resembles the the tone and the um, the essential atmosphere of civil discourse in the run up to the war. I mean, people were simply shunning uh, other people that didn't agree with them and seeking out uh, opinions uh, of those that 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 did that they did agree with. And so, you start to become very claustrophobic, but not just in your belief system, but in your social 
contacts. And, you know, that kind of division is, it's only a matter of time unless, you know, there's, there, there are, you know, very, very uh, tough and difficult ways to, 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 to break through that by just becoming more engaged in the community and, and learning more about things outside of your own immediate sphere of influence, which is, of course, why history, again, plays such an important role, because it provides a context for, for everything that's happening now, at least as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the war and reconstruction, you know, foreshadowed and illustrated very clearly um, issues like PTSD and, and how, to, how to treat soldiers once they've, you know, they've um, income inequality. I mean, if there's, if there's no more, there is no more glaring example of in, income inequality than slavery, which there's no income at all. Uh, these kinds of issues came, f burst full, full, full front on, in the war, and they've stayed with us ever since. So as a, as a historian, it seems to me, as a his writer of historical fiction, I mean, if, I think that the best way to get a perspective on what we're going through now is to look at what we've been through and see if we can find, find any kind of um, hints as to how to, how to uh, bring, our, bring the country more together. Do you think that uh, regarding the Civil War veterans coming home, you touch on that in the book a little bit, how they were treated, and I also think you posted some blog posts about it. By the way, check out Antonio's website at www.antonioelmali.com. And there you can also see his blog posts uh, as well. So how were the veterans from the Civil War treated medically and even from a sociological point of view when they came home as opposed to now or during the Vietnam War? Well, I think for starters, uh, uh, there was a greater sense of, of respect for the sacrifice that was made. Uh, whether you were a Union or a Confederate soldier, you put your life on the line. Um, I think that as it related to the specific um, issue of treating wounded veterans, there was precious little to, to offer them uh, with the exception of uh, morphine, you know, to help amputees with what had to be a daily agony. Um, the difference, I think, is that there was no, at least from what I've read from diaries and personal accounts, there, there, there seems to be a remarkable lack of judgment on the part of, of people of civilians towards soldiers who were by that point addicted to, to morphine um, because you know that's that generation was actually called the morphine generation because so many veterans were in fact addicted because they had no other there was nothing else that medicine could do for them for for pain um, much less for any of the mental or psychological scars that they were suffering it's interesting I guess this, just to put a cap on it, it's interesting to see that people seem to be more tolerant of, of veterans, you know, um, you know, being, being uh, addicted to these drugs because they knew that they had given, they, they deserved it. You know, they deserved the, some kind of bare modicum of comfort, you know, some kind of relief from, from the agonies and trauma that they, that, and I think that that's lacking, that's missing today. There's a lot of judgment. The war of on drugs is kind of commingled with, with uh, you know, the, the problem of, of, of veterans uh, and substance abuse. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's gotten, I think, quite charged with a, a judgmental attitude that doesn't serve anybody well, really. 
Well, I'm going to bring Leslie into the conversation now, but it just occurred to me that, I mean, I could be wrong, but it just seems to me that the reason the veterans of the Civil War were treated so differently, so much better, was because the war was right at home. Other wars we've been in overseas in recent history have been in this nebulous sort of over there place and not right in our own backyard. So it seems that because we don't have the same visceral experience with it being our own country, like it was during the Civil War, that it's something that happens somewhere else. And then the veterans from the overseas wars, they come home and people don't have a frame of reference like they did during the Civil War. Uh, Leslie, would you say that's that was a fair statement? Uh, yeah, there's a couple of points uh, I want to make. I think that the, uh, the to the issue of women stepping up to the plate to do what men were not available to do when we saw it so kind of as a step-down unit in World War II, it brought the war, the war effort, as it was referred to so often, um, closer to home not with the, the guns firing and the artillery popping around everywhere. But that brought it a little bit closer to home. People understood more. Most of the women who went into the factories had somebody, some direct connection to somebody who was over there, over there fighting. Um, what we see, too, is, and then there was the whole beginning of the conflict about where do women belong, when the men came home after World War II, it's, you know, do you go back to the kitchen, right. go be your wife now, but what are you talking about? I just I just built and flew airplanes. What are you talking about? <laughs> true, yes. Yeah, very true. Uh, and yeah. combat, combat missions as well, that's a lesser known fact. Um, and then if you fast forward that, you know, Korea, of course, was the forgotten war. Nobody knew much about it. And then you get to Vietnam. And what I do in therapy with my Vietnam veterans very often is try and join them to an historical perspective and see the parallel between their trauma, their acute loss, and what I refer to as an emotional fragmentation grenade that goes off at the time of trauma to what was going on in the country at that time because the country was in a state of trauma behind the assassinations. Right. Kennedy, Malcolm X. Uh, oh, and somebody's chiming in there. That's cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> He's getting on um, so when the guys hear that, they kind of go, aha, I didn't think about that. So getting them to understand what trauma is, which trauma, is, trauma equals loss. And where there's loss, there has to be grief. And part of grief is anger. And anger is the behavioral manifestation of fear because once you get that afraid as you are when you face life and death situations as you do only in not and I'm not saying there are no other types of trauma combat has a special component to it um, let me let me just say what I mean by that if there's a natural disaster or something that happens a car accident it's not as personal. The, the injuries may be personal and devastating to be sure, but when there's somebody looking at you, trying to kill you, the element of why am I so hated, which doesn't surface until later, is, it's, it's a bone-chilling, penetrating kind of fear that a lot of people just don't get, even if they come up, come up against terrible, terrible things. I think the closest we can liken in a non-combat traumatic situation would be rape. 
you know, it's it's just that additional question mark in the equation. So to try to trying to to ground people and say, yeah, that was then, and trauma is kind of like a comet; it happens once, it blazes high and then it dies between except between the ears of the person who was there and experienced it, and it stays ever bright, and it stays its impact doesn't diminish. And we spend a lot, a lot of time reframing, talking about a moral injury, talking about uh, that was then, this is now, explaining the physiology of what happens when life, which is universally in session, goes on. And a bad thing that we would say, oh, fill in the blank, this was not a good thing that happened, it will get a field promotion to a traumatic event once someone has, in fact, experienced a traumatic event and since the brain doesn't register events it just registers feelings when that feeling comes over someone in a nano of a nanosecond the brain starts shooting out the the stress hormones the cortisol and the adrenaline people get into that mode and then the brain kicks in and says oh when else did i feel this way mm-hmm. and they relive it in the form of intrusive memories or flashbacks and there's a lot of times that uh, a drug-like effect, you, the, the impact of those hormones, will have people behave in a certain way. When that dies down a little bit, people will go to seek that high because you're never, ever as alive as the moment before you die. Right. And and it's all physiological. We have no influence, no authority over it any more than any of our other bodily functions. Does it increase or, or is, it, is it like uh, ruts from a wheel on a path that's been driven over and over and over again where it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and more difficult to get out of? And which is why when the Vietnam veterans, because... Look, they've called they've called what we now are calling post traumatic stress. Oh, going back to Julius Caesar, it was called soldier's heart, and, right. and melancholia, and and nostalgia, which nostalgia, that one nostalgia. nostalgia in the Civil War, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think Abe Lincoln put that one, and they uh, and then they called it shell shock. Well, that had much more of a physiological component from the artillery and the middle ear and all that stuff, and. Um, and then it evolved to psychoneurotic combat disorder in World War II. And eventually it became post-traumatic stress. And even now we're, we're doing away with the word disorder, I'm so pleased to say, because it's, it's condition. And if somebody has a disorder, I don't want to be the one who gets up in their face saying, you have a disorder. So what you have okay. is post-traumatic stress. And let's break that down perhaps. You experienced a traumatic event. And if you're telling me about it in the past tense, it's post-trauma. And if you experienced something and it is now post-trauma, it seems perfectly reasonable to me that you would be stressed. So let's redefine it. We don't say you have a bronchitis disorder. You know, you try and normalize as much as we can. So we do a whole lot of work with education and just... Just common sense talk. And then, of course, we do cognitive behavioral therapy and all sorts of interventions along. Mostly, mostly, however, we want people to understand that their condition after traumatic 
exposure is reasonable. I don't know what the word normal means, by the way, but it's right. reasonable. It is a reasonable response to a completely unreasonable situation. And I'm sure Antonio would agree that war is the ultimate insanity. There is no reason to war. I mean, there are some big shots who say, I need this and you won't give it to me, so I'm going to send a bunch of guys over to fight. Well and good on the page, but in terms of on the battlefield, it is a state of insanity. I talk about how they go through the looking glass. And Mm -hmm. nothing, no training, even the Marines, God love them, are not prepared for what they see when they get there. It's really an, oh, my God, we're not in Kansas anymore. Are there people in your field, are you learning things even today about post-traumatic stress? Or is there really nothing that can be done and you just have to wait until they come home and deal with it after the fact? Um, the, as far as I know, the Department of Defense and the VA are looking to create stress hardiness scales. And again, this who knows if it's going to work. We'll find out maybe. But there are people who have been either traumatized or maltreated very early on, and that ties into the developmental stages psychologically. I don't want to get into you know psychobabble here, but uh, you know there are very definite. Uh, prescriptions for a predisposition to being traumatized. And interestingly enough, the studies keep showing that about 40% of the people who are, experience, who are exposed to and experience traumatic episodes are in fact traumatized. And it breaks down into all sorts of socioeconomic and uh, ethnic considerations, uh, age is a big factor. Um, rank in the service is a big factor. Uh, so we we do have some mediators, you know, somebody who grew up in the Cleaver household. I don't mean with cleavers being thrown at them, but in the, in the cleavers, <laughs> although there are some of those too. Um, they, would, they would definitely be in the predisposition uh, <laughs> bunker. Yeah. So, but we see people who uh, everything was hunky-dory. You know, they didn't struggle. They had a two-parent home. They were they were not beaten or abused in any way. They were nurtured and nourished and all that stuff. And then they went to war and they experienced some traumatic events, one or more. And they came home and they talked things through, but they had a loving family to come to, uh, the welcome home party, all of this wonderful stuff. And, you know, pat, pat, and you're so, you know, we missed you so and you're so wonderful. Um that's an easier case, except that that guy or that gal is never home when I call. Our population that we see working with uh, the bulk of soldiers who come to the Veterans Administration, these are people who uh, have struggled their whole lives maybe to stay out of gangs. Maybe they went into gangs. Uh, they don't come, all of them, from uh, from shall we say, intact families. Birth order is another thing that counts. Uh, how long have they been here? Where were they raised? Were they in rural Tennessee or were they raised in Manhattan? So many variables, so many variables, I think make it difficult to find out about a predisposition. They are working on it. They are they are trying to find out. Maybe this guy isn't such a good case for, I don't know, Combat, you know, maybe, maybe, right? Yeah, a special ops team or something. Yeah, I mean, it takes seven 
support soldiers to put one combat soldier in the field. So there are other jobs available. And, you know, is there, you know, is there, schiz- you know, is there schizophrenia in their family? Is bipolar disorder in their family? Because the onset of adult schizophrenia and bipolarity is between 18 and 25. And, Antonio, what's the average age of a combat soldier? Well, 18 to 25. That's, that's the sweet spot. Yep. That is. That is. Have and you, uh, Leslie, in your experience, seen that there seems to be a theme of, of a delayed? In other words, it seems as if the soldier comes home, everything seems good. You know, six months later, a year later, the spouses start to sense something that's that mm-hmm. the, 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 the person's disappearing. They don't right. know where he or she's gone. That's but right. They're not there, and is there? Can you, you know, point out why there seems to be a delayed, a delayed, uh, whatever the word is, uh, you know, to this a, know, a to, delayed response, a, a delayed stress response? response. Yeah. I think that uh, that, that that's going to have all these variables involved too. I mean, people have married young before they go to to combat. There might be a couple of kids on the on the map when they get home. Uh, that role reversal needs to be worked out, so they're, they walk right into bad relationships or, or conflicted relationships f- from the gate. And don't understand that. The prevalence of alcohol and other drugs in, this, in society today, it's available. The pain is there. The disruption is there. The emotional disruption is there. It's, there are more accessible ways to deal with it than to say, oh, I'm in trouble psychologically and I have to go get help. I must say that the Department of Defense and the military are much, much better in the last couple of years of informing in informing their returning vets, male and female, about the services available in the community. And in so the bringing, that, bringing that back to the Civil War, I think the, 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 the country the infrastructure was so woefully unprepared for the avalanche totally. casualties. I mean, it was a it was a disaster that again required people just rolling up their sleeves and going, I don't know how to do this, but I got to do something. And they precisely, so, you know, and that kind of spirit is 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 remarkable given that the hospitals didn't know anything about sepsis. Yeah. I mean, the whole millet, the yeah. whole medicinal. You know, world was was just in the dark ages, when, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you've got tens of thousands of of, of wounded veterans with mm-hmm. you know horrific wounds. I mean, these are mm-hmm. you know they're I don't know I can't liken them to IEDs, but you know a they're catastrophic. Yeah, they're, they they shatter bone. I mean, and then you're they done. shatter bone, they shatter mind, they shatter uh, emotions, they shatter everything. And so, I don't know if you're familiar with the series Mercy Street. Yes on HBO, it gives you maybe just a pinpoint of an inkling of what what it was like and and exactly using your phrase, how woefully inadequate they were. Interestingly enough, when we went into Iraq in 2003, we went into Baghdad, uh, we were also not at all prepared. I won't say not at all. We were underprepared for what we expected because the word from the top was, this is going to be over in 10 days, kids. Shock and awe. This That's be, what they said th- about the Civil War. Yeah, It'll be precise. over in 30 days. I mean, 90-day enlistment. Same, same That's right. psychology. You know, get it done quick. We're going, to, we're going to kick ass and we'll be home by Christmas or whatever it is. Precisely. So we had to scurry about and, and really put stuff in order pretty quickly, um, which 
you know, with understaffing and so forth, you know, that's that's just that's just a fact of life. And I don't think war does much in the way of good, but there have been more medical advancements that have been happened upon by accident in war zones. Yeah. Than yeah. Than all the all the laboratories and all the hospitals across the world. That's it's a hell of a way to learn a lesson, though. Yeah. <laughs> Are there identifiable stages of PTS or like the stages of grief? Are there are there clearly identifiable uh, stages uh, to this? Oh yeah. First, first you're probably going to see withdrawal because. Uh, it, you come back through that looking glass I mentioned, and the world mm-hmm. becomes about, you know, I don't mean to offend anybody, but WTF, I don't get it, because what mm-hmm. we've done is, is done a cloak of uh, of behaviors and responses to things that were meant to keep us alive and achieve our military objective, okay? Okay, you do that, and by virtue of the fact that you came back through the looking glass and you are alive, um, they worked, but they don't work here. And over there, as lethal as the conditions were, there was a lot to help level the playing field. Namely, your fire team, your squad, go on up to battalion strength. You had your M50, your M16, your M60. You could call in artillery, firepower, need I go on. Here, the only arrow you've got left in your quiver is anger. Anger is is fueled, fostered, again, universally by some version of fear. And so you walk around, and you're your combat-trained soldier. And I'm talking about cross, you know cross-gender. Um, you, what you have is grr. Well, if you've seen, if you're in close proximity to somebody who's seen combat, and they look at you and are mad, it's sort of a different level. And people will do what they need to do. Usually withdraw. Well, that's that's attaining your objective because the objective in combat is to repel the enemy. You kill it or you chase it away, but it has to get gone so you can complete your mission. So if you go grr and they run away, okay, fine. Another phenomenon that happens, though, is you don't know all the time who you're talking to. So if you're talking to somebody who wants to, oh, yeah, well, grr this, then it it can get into violent situations. And that's wonderful for somebody who has bottled up so much fear and it's like okay and that's why we see people getting into fights and uh, the assaultive behaviors that start it's primarily and preeminently anger if I had to pick one so now when you when you see an incident like that is that when it's time for family members to go uh, now would be the time you need to talk to somebody yeah he's in trouble is there a way to get someone who says, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I, I don't have any problems? Uh, is there a way for family members to get someone who they know needs help to take that first step and start therapy? Oh, I love that you asked this question because I get calls a lot from family members, you know, young wives, mothers, sisters, who are in tears and frantic because they're vets is um, is just going off the deep end and they don't know what to do. Um, get into treatment. That's kind of scary. 
you know, somebody's going to probe something, and I don't want that to happen. And uh, that's another another point that I'll make in a minute is uh, I just ask people to have them call me just for a conversation. I never I never tell people to come in for anything clinical. You know, maybe maybe we could sit down and have a chat, see if we have something that might be able to help you out. You tell me what your needs are. You know, really staying away from the psychobabble stuff because it just it just puts up another barrier. But the secret part is something that as soon as somebody does come in, we start talking about, and I'll say, you know, this this happened, and you're responsible for it. There, you you assume that because you were there, it it was your fault. And the only reason that people do that is because all of these incessant and relentless questions, why, 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 why is a completely irrelevant question. If it changed something, I'd, I'd entertain it, but it doesn't. So what are you doing with it now that counts? So you harbor that why, 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 and one day there, there comes a big dose lap. Aha, I was there. I'm the common denominator. Therefore, I either did or did not do something that caused this unspeakable event or series of events. Ta-da! That settles down a lot of questions. Whoops! The other side of that coin is, I must be some miserable piece of work if I caused that. I must never let anybody know. And that's the first secret. That's laying down the sand pile upon which you try and build a life. We know what happens to castles that are built of sand. Right. Leslie, can, can I ask this question? Cause it, Please. It, you, know, I've, I've, you know, when I write the blog and I talk about PT, PTS, uh, mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm beginning to see a link between this, this questioning of why did I do this or why, and the fact that some of these wars that we've been fighting have no clearly, I mean, not that war should ever have a moral purpose, but we ascribe a moral purpose to it. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the fuzziness of some of the conflicts we've been engaged in, you know, I'm thinking specifically of Korea, Vietnam, mm-hmm. and, 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 and the Iraq-Afghanistan conflict, right. where there was not a uniform and universal sense of this is the right thing to do. So soldiers would go off, and there was a kind of a moral shakiness to their even going. So when they get there and they see that whatever the rhetoric was that mm-hmm. justified sending them may not stack up with what's going on, and then they come home and they they've got all the horrible horrible baggage going on. Mm-hmm. It's just a complete. Whereas when you look at the Civil War, I mean, there was not the same moral ambiguity. Moral ambiguity. It was, oh there no, was a, there was a, a very clear, clear. You know, you could say that one side was misguided, but. They were com- as committed and believed as deeply in the rightness of their cause as did, you know, the Union side. Absolutely. And that clarity had to help when it came time to come home. I mean, I could I, be wrong about that. No, I, I would be, I would, I would be very surprised if it, if that isn't exactly what was going on. Um, it, there would be another side to that. Is like, you know, I, I gave so much, and when not much was given back, there's a lot of resentment. What I've seen in, let's see, we went in in 2003, give or take, and uh, people would come back and a lot of apple pie, patriotic duty, all this stuff. Not so much anymore. Not so much. I'm seeing the returning guys just being as resentful as they can be um, after their 
second, third, sometimes fourth tours. Um, it was like enough already. I went into the service with a plan. I was, you know, in many cases, uh, I went into the service to get out of circumstances uh, that were not going to take me down a road I wanted to go down and that I would do my duty and I would come out and the reward would be that I would have benefits, I would be able to go to college, better myself, better my family, etc. And even that hasn't worked so well. And uh, and then you say, well, why are we there? You know, what, there is no reason. What are reason. we doing? What, why yeah. were we there? Yeah. yeah. And the reason is similar to the reason we were in Vietnam. Is that a bunch of bunch of guys up top decided that was the thing to do, except they weren't the ones who went to war. Right. In my World War II group one time, one of my guys, he was a former prisoner of war, B-17 pilot, he, he said, I am so mad that they keep sending our young boys over. They should come and send us over. I said, really? And if somebody walked in right now, a recruiter, and said, come on, you're going to go fight a war. He said, that's my point. We wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a reason they pick 18 to 25. <laughs> that's right. That's, go back to Roman times. They, the legions used to march through the fields and see these healthy young people, and then they'd buy them from their families or pay large amounts to the farmers. And that's I tell my guys, that's why they call it the infantry. You know, they're young and strong and stupid. Now, before we run out of time, I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about your pet therapy, which sounds amazing. It sounds great. It is. It is wonderful, and it's it's a it's a burgeoning burgeoning movement. But about 13 years ago, I rescued a dog. Uh, she's half Boxer and the other half is Ridgeback and Shepherd, with the express purpose of inserting her into our treatment program because I always have had such a passion for dogs. And uh, I just wanted to see how it was going to work. Well, to be perfectly honest with you, for the, that she's come, been coming up to the unit every single day, nobody cares if I show up. But if that animal is here, it's like... <laughs> Where's Cassie? What's going on with Cassie? And uh, they've been through a couple of operations with her. Um, and they, the connection, because I guess we've got about 62 genetic links to canines, but the connection that they have with a uh, just the tactile um, connection. Here's this benign creature, gorgeous thing of 60 pounds and heavenly to look at. Uh, she gives them the honor of walking around the group room every every time we meet, and she sniffs and she allows herself to be petted, and she goes and curls up in the middle of the floor, and then group starts. And uh, at times, and I don't know what cues she's picking up on, but from time to time she'll get up and walk over to someone. Uh, many, many times somebody new has come to the office, and they're very tight, very constricted, she'll walk over and just sort of sniff at their hand and barely lick their hand, and tears flow, I can't even tell you. Uh, Why do you think they have uh, such a reaction? Because they trust her, because she's so benign, and she's another, she's another mammal that they and don't have to fear. it's also nonverbal. It's nonverbal communication, it's non-verbal. so it's simple. Absolutely. It's eye contact, and it's tactile. It's not... No, no brain work. It's just that's right. It's all it's all guttural, uh, visceral stuff that happens. It sounds comforting. 
it is amazingly comforting when you know if I, I my office is very near our day room and uh if i walk out and say hey how you doing fine where's our girl <laughs> you know, what am i chopped liver <laughs> but you know i've seen it over and over and over again and we're signing off on forms and letters like crazy because when our guys are finding housing they're uh we're we're legitimizing their need for a, a pet a therapy animal it is just an astonishing wonderful healing process that have you go. ever by any chance taken vets to an animal shelter where dogs if they aren't rescued would be euthanized Has, have you ever i haven't about personally that? taken them but i have referred them i mean it seems to me that that would be a pretty interesting it is wonderful in fact about an hour before this call started, one of my guys came in and asked me to fill out some forms. And in his arms, he had this six-week-old blue-nosed, uh, what do they call them, uh, pit bulls, six weeks old. <laughs> you know, and Cassie went over to him. You know, it would have been an hors d'oeuvre for her if she were that sort. <laughs> <laughs> She's sniffing and her tail's wagging. and uh, it, it's just an amazing thing to see. It's heartwarming. And what it does is give us, or I'll speak for myself, me as a therapist, a clue and an insight as to where I can go with them and to what level they will go if properly escorted. Um, and that, that can have an, a huge impact on how I decide to interact with somebody at any given point. You know, I know you can go deeper, um, and getting them there, of course, that's that's what we do as therapists, is kind of drive a 20-mule team is when to take you further and when to hold you back. Um, but the dog has just been remarkable. And across the VA, we have people going into the, the uh, primary care hospital units, both psych and medical. And there's a miniature horse. There are a couple of cockatiels. We have a parrot therapy program, <laughs> a German shepherd. <laughs> it's like, and it's just wonderful to see the guys. That time, yeah, that must be quite an. an, an it's an, just amazing. So yeah, I can't speak enough about pet therapy. I think it's quite wonderful. That sounds amazing. Now we only have a couple minutes left, and I wanted to get to one question for Antonio. Uh, you've named your blog. Uh, a house united uh, why did you choose that particular phrase well because it's uh you know it's a pl- it's a it's a take on the a house divided you know the famous speech i think it was at cooper union that lincoln made in 1858 where he foreshadowed the the destiny of the republic if it were to remain slave and that it couldn't stand being half slave half free it's going to be one or the other but not mm-hmm. both and so that division, you know, that sense of a, of, a, of a divided country is very apparent. I mean, we see it every day. But the, the whole reason why I wrote this book was not to go into the war and to relive a lot of the, 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 the issues of, of the specific battles or any of those things. It was really, I was much more interested in seeing if I could draw a map towards healing. And mm-hmm. so when I started to think about writing a blog, which would be a continuation of thoughts I had after the book was written, I thought about, well, what, what about a House United? Why can't we start to imagine uh, a, uh, the, our country 
which I believe has been divided fundamentally ever since the birth of the republic by a couple of very major uh, intractable problems. Uh, but if we don't start to imagine a roadmap to healing, um, then all we can imagine is, you know, the next thing, which is a, a total collapse and a return to, you know, to what happened 160 years ago. Right. So that wasn't particularly attractive yeah. to me, and I certainly don't want to, you know, that's not the kind of historical fiction that I'm interested in writing. I, I'm mm -hmm. very interested in offering some kind of hope or, or at least a glimmer of what does it take to heal from something that is so, that seems to be so uh, just too big, too too painful, too whatever. And so that's the why I took that, why I mm -hmm. chose that title, that further theme. By the way, that's Do a very insightful okay. comment because that's exactly what it takes to heal. You you first identify this gross disruption and you break it down into manageable doses. That's great. Uh, and there's also a lot of hope in Antonio's book, The Ones They Left Behind, which is available in hardcover, paperback, audio, and ebook. And you can find those on any of your online stores that you frequent. And you can also go to his website. Again, that's antonioelmali.com and uh, find out more about the book and how, how to uh, purchase it. Do I have time to recount my one last vignette? Because I think it's very apt. I got a letter from a woman uh, who had read the book, and it uh, turns out she's 86 years old. Mm -hmm. And she was thanking me for writing the book in part because it stirred her to look back into her own history. She has a photograph on her stairwell of an old man with long white hair, floppy hat. It's a black and white picture taken on a porch somewhere with a bunch of other old men. And she, this, the woman who recounted this story to me said that she, that was her grandfather. But she was so taken with the, the, the personal nature of what I wrote about in the book, that, and she knew of this grandfather's, you know, that he had been a veteran. So she started to rummage around, and she ran, went up in her attic, and lo and behold, she found a letter that I think it was her, her grandmother wrote. And the letter describes the following scene. This woman is dusting her rug on the porch in a little town in Pennsylvania. It's about June of 1865. The war is over. And she, as she's dusting her rug, the train pulls into the station. And this is a, a pretty exciting time because veterans are coming home from, from the war. But nobody gets off the train. So she's kind of, so she goes back. And then she looks back and she sees one soldier literally fall on his face off the train car onto the platform get up very kind of groggily and kind of stagger a little bit to get his bearings, and it's clear from uh, to the woman that she, this, this boy is drunk. So she goes back into the house, and she's, you know, doing chores, and then she starts to think about this boy again. She says, well, you know, maybe I should, you know, give him some directions. He's so drunk, he could end up in Ohio, you know, for all I know. So, <laughs> so she goes back in, she gets some water, and when she returns, this young boy who's wearing a very floppy hat, so his face is a little bit, you know, guarded from her, is standing in front of her. And as she walks down the stairs to offer them the, the, some water, the boy lifts up his head, and to the woman's amazement, she recognizes her own son for the first time. And this vignette so hit me because this boy had been so changed. His whole physical 
you know, his whole space around him, his whole way of carrying himself, you know, granted he was drunk, the, the mother could not recognize her own son. And, and it turns out that that boy was the the, the old man in that in picture. In the picture, oh my. So this is about historic, wow. you know, this is, if ever there's a vignette that, that really registers how, you know, historical fiction can make a real difference and make seemingly inaccessible and, you know, cold facts turn into something that a person can actually relate to in their own life in their own right. life it was really just quite moving for me so and there she is now registering <laughs> <laughs> uh well i'd like to thank our guest today uh author antonio amali the author of the ones they left behind and also leslie martin licensed social worker and expert in the treatment of post traumatic stress I had a great time uh, speaking with you both today, and I hope to speak uh, with you again sometime soon. I hope right. so. Thank you. Take care. Bye.